Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning or your touch pads or your phones, wherever you can get the scripture, or it'll be up here in a few minutes on the screen, to Matthew chapter 8. We are in a sermon series where we are looking at last year into last fall of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. That sermon ended with Matthew's editorial comment about the unusual and amazing authority with which Jesus taught. The following passages in Matthew 8, 9, and beyond speak to that authority, not just in word, but in action. And what we've seen so far is that Jesus has authority over the physical world. He has the authority to heal. We see that in healing the leper, healing the centurion early in chapter 8. And we saw last Sunday that Jesus has authority over the cosmos, over the created order. He's on a boat in the Sea of Galilee, and they're out in the middle of the boat, in the sea in the middle of the night, and there arrives a gale force wind, an incredible storm. And Jesus calms the water, showing his disciples that he has authority over the physical world. This morning we're going to look at a passage that asks the question, what about evil? Now we're not talking about sin. We're not talking about uh, those things that we do that are wrong. Okay, We're not making light of sin. If you are gossiping about someone, if you lie about something, that's a sin and that's wrong. I almost kind of, sort of, maybe ran a red light on the way to church this morning. It was kind of yellowish, pinkish. So, But if the police officer had been there and pulled me over, I wouldn't have argued. I'd have said, you know what, close enough, I was wrong. So we commit sins. I'm quite certain between last Sunday and this Sunday, you've done something that has been harmful to yourself or someone else. I know I certainly have. We're not talking about kind of your everyday sin. We're talking about wickedness. We're talking about the manifestation of evil. And as I've studied this topic for the last couple weeks, I've been reminded that the Western culture in which we live really has a serious problem understanding and explaining evil. Again, not just sin, but the notion and the evidence of unmitigated Wickedness. After all, what is it in a young man who has political aspirations but has bitterness in his heart towards a certain people group? What is it that possesses that man when he eventually gains power to systematically exterminate over five million people? What makes a person evil like that? Mass murder. You think about the Oklahoma City bombing back in 1995 or the 9-11 Tax. You think about what is it that possesses a person to collect firearms and then go to their high school or go to a grade school. We think about names like Columbine and Sandy Hook. What possesses a person to perpetrate that kind of evil on others? But not just in a, in a, in a massive sort of way, not sort of in a group way or in a national way, but you think about individual evil. My generation can certainly remember the Sharon Tate murders that were committed by Charles Manson, who is still alive and still in prison in California, and the bloodiness and the, and the evil that we saw and witnessed in that event. More recently, we think of Susan Smith. What possesses a woman to take her car with her two small children in it to a lake and then send the car into the lake with her children still inside? What on earth possesses two teenagers to murder their parents for the money? And what's even more disturbing is after Eric Menendez shot his mother, when he found that she was still alive, he went back and he reloaded. How do you explain this sort of evil? The 
sort of horrific violence? Can we understand it? Can we identify and can we name evil? Well, I, I went back and I looked at what our culture says as it wrestles with this question. And it tries to explain the notion of evil. And I'm not going to put all these ideas on the screen this morning because we don't have time. But you'll probably recognize some and you may have others that you think of when you consider this question. If you go back to some of the, the genesis of the Western culture and you think about the Greek philosopher, certainly your mind is drawn to Socrates and his notion that no one who knows good can actually commit evil. In other words, intentional evil is actually impossible. People commit evil mistakenly thinking they are doing good. So you take the example of, of a Hitler that I mentioned earlier. He certainly thought that he was doing good and he was just grossly misguided. Is that a sufficient explanation for evil? Modern psychologists tell us that evil is ultimately the product of some sort of dysfunction or disorder. It comes because of past abuse. abuse. Or mental disease, is that sufficient for the question? Some say that evil is merely the absence of good. Edmund Burke, who is an Irish politician and thinker, coined this phrase, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. Maybe that's the definition of evil. Maybe we're just not trying hard enough to be good. In the... Uh, postmodern world and beyond. We're now exiting a postmodern world. I'm not sure what our, our next generation is being called, but the, the thought and the notion that evil, like goodness, is really relative, and, and you make it up in your mind, and whoever ultimately has the power is the one who gets to define wickedness. If you look at it from a theological perspective, some would argue that God clearly is uncaring, that God is absent or perhaps he's actually impotent. Maybe God is there, but he, he actually doesn't have the power or the authority to do anything about these deep-seated issues of wickedness when they crop up from time to time. Ron Rosenbaum has wrestled with this question. He's an author and a writer. He's written extensively for the New York Times. And going back to 1995, Rosenbaum wrote an article for the New York Times that June calling Staring into the Heart of Darkness. It's a long article. It's well worth the read if you haven't, haven't ever read it before. If you have read it, maybe it's been years. After all, it's almost 20 years ago that it was written. It would be worth your time to go back and look at how our culture wrestles with this question. I think he expresses it incredibly well. But he wrestles with this question of God being impotent or uncaring. And Rosenbaum went to Oklahoma City and he met a lot of people that had been touched by the Timothy McVeigh bombing. And he met one man who had been nicknamed Angel Man because Angel Man was a guy who had just volunteered. He ended up helping a lot uh, in and around that community for months and months after the bombing had occurred. And so he had gotten this nickname of, of Angel Man. And as Rosenbaum is interviewing him, he said, I, I know you have been helpful in the aftermath, but have you ever come face to face with actual evil itself? And Angel Man told a story of one time when he was driving with his wife on a remote highway. And there was only him and a car behind him. And the car pulled up next to me. He said, when I turned and I looked, I saw the face of evil staring back at me. And the people in that car tried to run me off the road and actually forced me into the median. But I heard God's voice saying, just keep driving, drive through, turn around, and go the other direction. But he said, that's the only time I've ever experienced that. But, but I was saved from that. And here's Rosenbaum's reaction. If you believe in a God who has the power and the goodness and the inclination to intervene in a personal crisis, 
the personal crisis of Angel Man, to speak to him, to give him advice on evasive driving tactics, to enable him to escape evil. If you believe in God as ultimate omnipresent highway patrolman, then the question must arise. Why intervene to save Angel Man from evil and fail to intervene to save the children in the daycare center in the federal building on April 19th? Why not speak to the parents driving those helpless innocents to their rendezvous with fertilizer and fuel oil inferno and tell them cross the median, go the other way? Some would argue that from the theological side of the coin, God simply does not care enough, or he is absent, or he does not have the power to change these things. And lastly, some would argue that evil exists in order that we would exercise our, our, our goodness muscles and become even better people. But I would suggest that all of this leaves me, I think it leaves us as a culture, to ponder, unsatisfied and adrift, hoping to avoid the havoc that evil wreaks in this world, but ultimately having no fundamental answer to the question. Scripture knows no such confusion. It speaks the truth if we're willing to listen. Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34 on the question of evil. Speaking about Jesus, And when he came across to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way, so violent that to travel down that pathway and to come across these two men was literally to take your life in your hands. And behold, they cried out, What do you have to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down a steep bank into the area and drowned in the water. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everyone, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed man. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Will you pray with me? Fathers, we come to a, a very difficult and tenuous question. The answer of which seems to continually elude us until the next evil event arises and then we scratch our heads once again and wonder why. Father, I pray as we turn to your word this morning that we would do so in faith. That we would do so understanding that you are the one who does deliver us from evil as we just prayed in, in your Lord's prayer. That, that deliverance is not complete yet. We are still in the, what we call the now but not yet. We are redeemed, but you have not completed all of your work. You have not returned to this earth to establish the new heavens and the new earth. And so we are waiting for that moment. Whether we see it or not in our lifetimes, Lord, we pray that you would use us as agents for your glory and your good and your beauty. And that as we study this text this morning, we would understand a portion of what Scripture says about the question of evil. This certainly isn't all of it, Lord. There's much more. 
But this, this shows us your heart. It shows us your authority. It shows us your passion for redemption. And I pray we would see that. Father, forgive me for my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want every person in this room to understand and learn this morning. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, that was a little more lengthy introduction than I normally give, but I think it was important to set the tone and the stage for this passage of Scripture. Let me give you the sermon uh, in a sentence, or actually two this morning. I couldn't quite boil it all the way down to one sentence, but here's where we're headed. We're on the question of Jesus and his authority, uh, his authority both in word and in deed. So Jesus uses his authority to destroy evil and redeem all who believe. To reject him is to face the evil within humanity alone. So there, there's a question we have to ask, not the question of if we face evil, because we all at some point come face to face with it, but when we do, how will we face it, in faith in him or on our own? I want to divide this passage into, into three uh, different observations. The first one is we want to look at, at the demonic. We want to look at these two men and, and the forces inside of them and what they're up to. Then we want to look at the disciples and the crowd, uh, the folks who come out and see what's happened, all right, uh, or who are eyewitnesses of the fact as it's unfolding. Uh, and then we want to look at Jesus and his action and his behavior and then try to draw a couple of conclusions to this. The first we want to do is, is kind of center in on what I'm going to call the demonic. First of all, I want you to see that the demonic is not some force out there. It's not some idea. It's not some notion. It's not the absence of good. It is personified. Evil is, is real in, in a, the spirit world. Look at verse 28 and verse 20, uh, 31. Excuse me. When Jesus came to the other side of the gatherings, two demon-possessed men met him. And when they get into the conversation, notice how Matthew correctly understands what's going on. The demons, speaking through the voice of these men whom they've overtaken, begged him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Scripture is always very, very clear that evil is personified. It's personified in the person of Satan and in all of his minions who have followed him. You can read about this throughout Scripture. The first introduction to Satan is found in Genesis chapter 3. But you can go all the way through to the book of Revelation and actually in several places in the book of Revelation, including chapter 12, to give one quick example, you will find over and over again Evil being confronted in the person of Satan who has rebelled against God. Who has gone his own way and said, I will ascend, I will be the, the most high. And is living an act of rebellion as an angel against God. And you say the modern mind has a hard time grasping that. And I don't disagree with that concept. But it doesn't make the modern mind right. <laughs> it means that the modern mind needs to wrestle with this issue of scripture. Where God's word has said, I don't want you to be overtaken or surprised. I don't want you to misunderstand evil. Evil is open rebellion against me. And you can find it most pointedly in Satan and his followers. And so some of his followers are busy with their handiwork that we come across in this passage this morning. Let me turn you to Shakespeare for, for just a moment. In Hamlet, Hamlet is with his traveling companion Horatio. And they're, and they're pondering this question of the spirit world. And Horatio's a skeptic. Horatio's a good skeptic. He can't bring himself to believe that, that there are spirits that are outside of human existence. And 
and uh, Hamlet says to Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Have we ever stopped to think that maybe our worldview is askew and not Scripture? Scripture is very clear and very straightforward. Evil is personified. James puts it this way. Your enemy, excuse me, uh, um, Peter puts it this way. The apostle Peter puts it this way. Your enemy, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. James says that, that Satan, we are to be on our guard against Satan because he wants to come and to kill and to steal and to destroy. Evil is not a force. Evil is personified. The second thing we need to see in this text is what does evil spend its time doing? What is the goal and the objective of an evil? It is to be disruptive and destructive. Again, come back to verse 28. Uh, this area of the tombs where they lived, they were so fierce that no one could pass that way. Again, the, the violence that is found in these men. You can actually read a corollary passage of this in Mark chapter 5 where it goes into more detail about how there's, they're, they're cutting with stones and they're attacking those that, that, that one of them at least has been put in prison and he can't be bound anymore. He tears the chains and he, and he breaks out of the jail. And there's a destructive pattern. There's a disruptive pattern. So much so that when they leave, when they're commanded to leave, and they go out of the, these two men, that they beg Jesus for the opportunity to be more destructive. Well, if we can't hurt these men, then allow us to, to indwell these pigs. And Jesus says, for the time being, that's fine, go. And they enter the pigs, and what do they do? They immediately drown the pigs, and then what do they do? I'm sure they went off looking for more mischief. That is the intent, the sole singular purpose of evil. But it's very, very important that we also notice in this passage that the demonic is forced to submit to the lordship of Jesus. If you look in verse 29, and they cried out, they screamed at Jesus, what do you have to want to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know where they're headed. They know who ultimately is going to win this contest of power, and they know that they're on the losing side. And they cry out, not necessarily in, in anger and vehemence and hatred, although I think that's part of it, but they cry out in abject fear. You see, they have come face to face with the God of the universe. And they know their cause is hopeless. And they are fearful that Jesus is now going to begin the just punishment that they deserve. And notice that they have to ask his permission. If you cast us out, if you force us to do what we don't want to do, Right? My kids used to say that to me, right? You tell the kids to go do something. Go make the bed. Do I have to? Yes, you have to. You're the person speaking in authority. And Jesus says to them one word in this text. Go. Be gone. Rid yourselves of, of this place. They must submit to the lordship of Jesus. That's the demonic in this passage. But there are other people involved here. We have the disciples and we have the crowd. Now, you're not going to see a verse for my comment about the disciples, simply for this reason, they are not mentioned. <laughs> They're conspicuously absent. They're watching, perhaps, in stunned silence. Now, they know this region. This is an area that, that this is not news. When they see these people coming out of the tombs, they hear, they've known about these men. 
and you can almost get the picture that they've been pulling the boat up on the shore, and Jesus gets out, and it's been a long night, and he's stretching his legs, and he's yawning, and he's probably walking around a little bit, and all of a sudden, here come these two lunatics, and you can almost see Peter going, hey, boys, push the boat back in the water. Let's get out of here. <laughs> but the passage doesn't mention the disciples. How sad that those who have the context of hearing the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, of just a few hours before seeing the winds and the waves be stilled when he offers one other word, hush, be still, now are, are absent from the engagement. More than likely out of fear, out of being startled, out of being shocked. But I can't pass judgment on them because how often do I check out of the bow? How often do I get fixated on evil and say, well, that's awfully powerful. I, I don't think I could ever do anything about that and forget the one who lives in me speaks to the wind and the waves and to the spirit world and holds complete and total authority. The disciples are conspicuously absent, but not the crowd. The crowd is mentioned in verse 34. When they beheld, all the city came out to meet. Now we've got a crowd. Now, now, now we've, we've got the makings of a revival, right? Now they're going to look and they're going to see that, that this, these guys have been healed. And they're going to say, Jesus, this is, this is amazing. We've heard about you. We're going to sit down now. Could we do a second sermon on the mount? Could we could call it the sermon by the lake and, and teach us? Because clearly you are the powerful one and we want to embrace your lordship. That's not what happens. The crowd comes out and they find out what happened to their, their pork industry, perhaps. They're upset about that. Maybe the economic balance has shifted in the last hour or two. But for whatever reason, their response is to say, Jesus, would you please leave? They begged him to leave their region. Much like the world in which you and I live today, the world is begging Jesus to leave them alone. I think no greater statement in our culture can be made about Christianity than that. We've seen it, we've heard it, and we want nothing to do with it. We cannot assume that the message of the gospel is going to penetrate every human heart. But it is important that we see in this text that even Jesus himself did not persuade everyone who ever heard him to come and to follow. And in fact, even his own disciples really had nothing to say at this particular moment. It speaks to the weakness of our human nature. It speaks to your weakness and to mine. But then there's Jesus the one who steps out of the boat and deals with the situation appropriately. Let's look for just a moment of, of how Jesus deals with it. First of all, we need to see that Jesus is always, always confrontational with evil. In verse 29, they cry out, What do you have to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Jesus, we know your stance on evil. <laughs> we know what you're going to do. We know that you are against us, and it's important for us to understand and see that evil knows that Jesus consistently stands against them. Uh, if you have a, uh, a strong-willed child, perhaps, in your family, you have learned the need for the importance of consistency. You have learned that you can't lose a battle to the strong-willed child because they'll take over your house. And they'll create a union within the other siblings, and then you'll be working for them the rest of your life, right? We had a daughter like that who very much had a plan. And as I've said many times, Cindy said, we, we just can't lose a battle to this kid. I was in a lodge about, about six or eight months ago, and I watched very quietly and didn't say a word as a mother, I, I would say of a 
three, maybe almost a four-year-old, so certainly a young man who could kind of understand yes and no and what to do and what not to do. And I watched as this mother told this child very, very firmly, very directly, getting down on her knee and looking, looking right in his eye, that he needed to stay right by her side and not run down that hallway one more time or there would be consequences. And I watched her tell him that, and I started to count. And she told him that nine times. And every time she told him, he did the same thing. He laughed, and he giggled, and he ran down the hall. Now, that's a form of parenting. If that's your form of parenting, God bless you. Knock yourself out. Have at it. (laughs) But in this case, the demons knew who was in charge. And they knew he wasn't fooling around. And they knew that he had come to set things right and to make a difference. And so they cried out, have you come to torment us? Have you come to give us our just due? Why? Because Jesus always is confrontational with evil. But I also want you to notice that he's also exercising complete authority over the spirit world. In verses 31 and 32, again, we've seen this. They begged him. There's that same word. Let us go into the pigs. And so when he said go, they had to obey They came out and went into the pigs. I mentioned my own children. I I can't fail to mention my own attitude growing up as a young man. And as a young guy, you're always trying to kind of figure out where the lines are and what you can get away with, right? And my mom, a lot of you know her. She's second service. She sits right over here. She's a little teeny tiny gal. And and she would, you know, fuss at us and tell us what to do. And sometimes we'd kind of giggle and try to run away until we heard those words. Wait till dad gets home. Sheer terror. (laughs) <laughs> Not, and my dad didn't beat us or abuse us or anything at all like that. But my dad was a cop, and he knew how to exercise authority. And when my dad said something, there was no debate. There was no conversation. There was, there was, it was done. Or you were risking uh, something you didn't want. It would have been safer to go to jail and say, lock me up. <laughs> you know, right? Because dad was going to run the house. He was going to protect us. He was going to care for us. He was going to make sure that we learned what it meant to be respectful and to be obedient. There was no nonsense. And there's no nonsense with Jesus. Jesus is exercising his complete authority. But notice how he uses it. And this is where it is the exact opposite. The differences couldn't be more stark. Because the demonic is powerful. The demonic has strength, right? We just sang uh, this morning Martin Luther's great hymn. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, but we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. How do we know that? Because Jesus exercises his authority to bring about redemption. So he says, cast us out, send us in the pigs. And he does. Uh, and, and there's healing, and there's relief, and there's salvation. I want to take you to the corollary passage, because Mark explains it just a little bit better. He picks out one of the two men in particular, and he says this. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man sitting there clothed in his right mind. Jesus is always caring about what is most important. Humanity's redemption. Your salvation and mine. And part of that includes the defeat of evil. Look, Listen to how Ravi Zacharias, modern day theologian, puts it in his book, Deliver Us From Evil. It's the name of the book. He said, evil is not just where blood has been spilled. Evil is in the self-absorbed human heart. As the face of evil becomes more hideous and ruthless, 
and the face of the future becomes more fearsome and dreaded. Yet for the gospel message, this may be the most significant moment in history. For the message of Christ provides the only supernatural hope of a changed heart and life. Those who had been evil up to that point, who had been possessed by evil and had therefore manifested evil in their lives, were now servants of Jesus. They were now healed. They were now men who had been redeemed. And praise God that while we live in a world where evil still fights against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and still rears its ugly head, we know ultimately that Jesus has paid the price for our salvation, that Jesus has redeemed us and has offered us new hope and new life in Him. And while you can even look back at church history and see people around the church mitigating evil, propagating evil on others, you don't see that in the life of the true disciple. The life of the true disciple as it's transformed ends up bringing love and compassion where before there was death and destruction. I read an email account from a friend of mine who's working with folks um, in different parts of the world and he talked about a man who was part of a terrorist organization who, who had murdered Christians. And he came to Christ for salvation. In the last six months, he's led 300 of his friends to Christ. He's been in prison now because of what he believes. But where the gospel shines in, evil has to flee. So how do we wrestle? How do we, how do we ponder this question of evil? Well, just to take us back to our culture for just a second. Our culture, apart from Christ, ponders this question of evil. But it has no answers. What it does have is, is in a sense... A very self-righteous flame. I want to take you back to Rosenbaum for a minute. I, I was singing his praises a few minutes ago, and, I, and, I, and I'm, I don't want to be overly critical of him, but I think he voices uh, a statement that is very common in our culture and a way of thinking that's very common in our culture. And he says, the problem of evil, the source of evil in the human heart and the persistence of evil in the heart of the world, or to put it another way, why, if there is a God, does he permit evil like child murder to take place without intervening? I would suggest that that smacks of self-righteousness. That says that God is wrong and I am right. It says that I know all that there is to know. I have all knowledge and all wisdom and all understanding. I'm not in any way hindered by finiteness on any level. And God is incorrect. And if he were a good God, he would do something better while completely ignoring my own culpability, my own lack of lifting a finger, of spending my resources, of giving of my time, not just to preach sermons or to write articles, but to actually go and be a force for good through the gospel and stand opposed to evil. We can, we can critique all day long, but until we're willing to look into our own hearts, we will do ourselves or no one else any good. Question of evil, we also must understand the context of Satan and his minions. They know Jesus, and they know that one day their, their doom is sure. Have you come to torture us before the time? They believe in Jesus, maybe better than we do. Not out of faith, but out of fear. But notice once again that Jesus uses his authority to destroy evil. And to redeem all who believe. So the question this morning is not a universal question. It's a very personal question. There's evil in my heart. A 
apart from Christ, there's evil in your heart. What are you going to do about that? It might not run the course that it could run to turn you into a Hitler, to turn me into someone who, who murders innocents, but the potential is there nonetheless. And Jesus has come to destroy that. And that's what he's done on the cross. He's defeated death and evil once and for all. And he offers us new life. And brothers and sisters in Christ, he offers us a responsibility to take that gospel, that light, into the world. Ravi Zacharias isn't writing about the gospel for someone else. He's writing about it for Green Tree Community Church. You see, the question of evil is one that, with which we must wrestle. What are we prepared to do? How far will we follow Jesus? Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, your battle with evil culminated at the cross. And you gave your life as a substitution for the judgment that we deserved. For the wrath that, that should have been ours because we have broken God's law. We have evil living in our hearts. We may not be as bad as somebody else, but that certainly does not excuse us or let us off the hook. And you knew that only a purely innocent sacrifice could make things right. So you went, you took our place. So we come this morning to your table thankful for that gift. Being reminded once again that you have stood in our place, taken our sin. And Lord, I pray that as we participate in this communion table, that you would nourish our very souls, that you would use us to bring the light of the gospel into dark places. It is a fearful thought to confront evil, but it is, it is a more shaming thought to think that we would just sit on the sidelines and just try to, try to get out unscathed. <laughs> Lord Jesus, we pray that you would nourish our souls, that as you use your authority for redemption, salvation, and grace, that we would follow you and join you in that. We pray in your name. Amen.